All right. So we are in the book of Hebrews. We've been in the book of Hebrews since the spring. And uh, we are stuck in chapter 11, and I'll tell you why. So if you have a Bible and you turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, that's where we are. The book of Hebrews was, we're a bunch of Bible scholars here. So the book of Hebrews is written to who? The Hebrews is written to the Hebrews. It was written to some first century Hebrews. Hebrews that had been involved in the Jesus movement, the Jesus revival that happened in Jerusalem. But by the time the book is written, it's some 30 years later, and a lot of the initial buzz, a lot of the initial fervor uh, had, uh, had died down. Persecution had hit them. So they were a persecuted church. They were scattered. They were nowhere near the church that they once were. Thousands of people were coming to Christ at a clip. Persecution hits. It says they scatter. They scatter everywhere. And there's some Hebrews who are left in Jerusalem. And the book is meant to encourage them as they're sort of sliding back a little bit and getting discouraged. And what the book does in the first 10 chapters, it says that Jesus is better than all of this religious stuff. It's better than all. Of, people get so confused with Jesus because there's, so, there's always so much religious stuff just sort of tagged on in, in filters that you see. It's really all about Jesus. And the book of Hebrews reminds us that it's all about Jesus. And so they're looking back to some of their old prophets and talking about the prophets and the prophecies. And the book of Hebrews opens up and it says, in many ways in the past, God has spoken to us in various and many different ways and through the prophets. And he shows that Jesus is greater than the prophets. You know, a lot of people will say that Jesus is a prophet, good man, good teacher. Jesus is greater than the prophets. Well, then they were having spiritual experiences and talking about angels. And, and the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is, Jesus is greater than the angels. Well, they had a priestly system and they had these priests that, that wore these garments that had all, all kinds of gold woven into it and, these, and jewels that they wore. He said, Jesus is greater than the priest. Well, what does a priest do? A priest is somebody that stands between humanity and God. And so they had physical priests in the day. But then it says that Jesus is now our high priest. Jesus is the one who stands between humanity and God. He's all you need. You don't need all of the rest of that. You don't, don't need all of that. And, and then they had the temple. Well, Jesus is greater than the temple. He is the temple. And if you were here when we did the temple, we showed that Jesus is, Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is greater than all of those things. And so chapters 1 through 10 try to secure our relationship with God, our reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. He did it for us. There's nothing you can do. All of the religious rituals, all of the religious days, all of the religious things you can do, you're going to fall short. Jesus did it all for us. We're all sinners. He took our sin on the cross. He died for us. That if we would trust in him, he would bridge the gap between humanity and God, reconcile us to God, and we would be children of God, the family of God. And so this little gathering here, we're 
a picture of that. We're a picture of the gathering of the family of God, the people who have put their trust in Jesus and who believe in him and trust in him, not in themselves, not in their works, not in religious things, but just in Jesus. And so um, the first 10 chapters try to convince us, and this is why it's so important that you have to get the Jesus thing straight before you get how are you going to walk this thing out. Because so many people seem to think it's the walking out of it, it's the doing of the deeds, it's, it's the, the character, it's what you do, it's what you give, it's how you serve. No, it's all about Jesus, and you have to get the Jesus thing squared away. And once the Jesus thing is squared away, then we learn how to walk it. So let's look at chapter 11, verse 1 and 2 again. Because now we're talking about living faith or walking faith. The first 10 chapters is faith in Jesus to save us, to reconcile us, to make us children of God. From chapter 11 on, it's how we walk out this walk. How do we walk with Jesus now? So here's how it starts. Faith. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And if you're following along on the app, we have some of these points, some of the notes there. And it, it, faith is confidence in what will actually happen. Saving faith, faith in Jesus, now living by faith, daily walk, daily work, daily family, daily finances, daily failure, daily grind, fitting in the future, all of those things, how do we do it? How do we do it? How do we live a life of faith, hope, and love lived out in the world? And so it gives us this sort of definition, but maybe more of a description of faith. And faith is this. Faith is confidence that God will do what he said he was going to do. That's what faith is. Believing that God will do what he said he was going to do. Well, what did he say he was going to do? If we're talking about salvation, redemption... He's saying that he will save you and he will give you eternal life. That when they put you in the ground or when they burn you up, that he somehow will reconstitute you and he will give you a spiritual body and you will be with him forever and ever and ever. Based on what? Based upon what you did? No, based upon what he did. And so it's faith that God will do what he said he's going to do. It's confidence in God. It's recognition of what he has done before. And then you see that faith is not new. Faith isn't a new thing. It might be new for you. And it can be new for you at any stage in your life, can't you? That's the amazing thing, that faith can be new for you when you're, um, we're supposed to baptize some, some younger people today. So it can become new for you when you're 10. It can become new for you when you're 30. It can become new for you when you're 90. Um, for my dad, it became new for him when he was 93 years old. <laughs> that was crazy. 93. So, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you the story. Some of you have heard it, but I'll tell you again. Since it's, it's kind of like if you're an attorney and witnesses giving their testimony when they say something, when they open the door, then you can go after that. <laughs> so I opened the door to talk about my dad, 93 years old. Uh, my dad got really hostile towards God, as do a lot of people. 
You know, you live in this world, you watch what goes on, you watch what people do in the name of religion, you watch what people do in the name of Jesus, and it's pretty easy to get cynical. It's pretty easy to just say, you know what, I don't want anything to do with any of that stuff. And so he was kind of at that place, and, and rather than, a lot of times when people get older, they sort of mellow more with those things. Now my dad, he got more hostile towards those things. And um, he, was in a, he was in convalescent homes here and there, and I came in his room several times, and he, he would say things like, I don't believe in none of that Bible junk. And I go, that's all right, Dad. Like, I'm not here to, like, talk Bible junk. I'm here, like, just to see you. So, like, let's just talk, you know, let's just talk about what's going on and, and let's talk about how many more times Tom Brady's going to retire, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever it is. You know, let's just talk about it. Uh, and so I came in one time, and he would do that. I came in one time, and, and he said, I don't believe in angels. And I said, Dad, when was the last time I talked to you about angels? I never talked to you about angels. I said, I don't know what you're doing right now. Like, what are you doing? I said, Dad, when are you going to get this God thing squared away? And he said, pretty soon. And I said, like, like when? And he said, pretty soon. I said, how about now? He goes, yeah, that would be good. So we prayed, you know, and then my dad just fell in love with the Lord. It was just, just amazing to watch. So, so it can happen. This faith walk can start for, for you at any time. And then you just, you just pick up where you were. The ancients were commended for this. It's not new, but it might be new for you. And so we are in a long string in succession of those who had faith in God and have walked with God. And it enabled them, it empowered them to overcome all of the circumstances and seasons of their life. Their loneliness, their barrenness, their poverty, their loss, their alienation, the seasons. And so... We are now going to look at one more person here, and that's going to be in verse 30 we're going to start with. Here's another character. So what's been happening in chapter 11 is it's been giving accounts of Bible people and what faith was like in their lives. And some people, we've said this before, right, that there are people that are called commentators, and these commentators, they study the Bible a lot. And they read a passage and then they comment on it. They make comments on it. And those comments can be very, very helpful. But sometimes those commentators think that their comments are the only comments and the only things that can be said. And an awful lot of these commentators call this chapter the heroes of the faith. Personally, I don't think that they're heroes of the faith. Because if somebody's a hero... That's who you want to hold up to your children, right? When these teachers just took these children to go in and to do Bible accounts and Bible stories and Bible history with them, they're going through the stories of some of these people. You don't want to tell those kids that they should be like and they should, their lives should mimic some of these people. For instance, Abraham. God had promised Abraham that he would give him a family and the family would be like the stars in the sky or the sand in the sea. Promised him. Now, he had a wife who couldn't have children. So what Abraham did, when God had promised him he was going to have a child, had a wife who couldn't have children, what he did was he went and he slept with the housekeeper. So I don't think that's very heroic. 
And I don't think you want to tell your young boys, you don't want to take the fourth grade boys <laughs> and tell them, you know, sleep with the housekeeper. You don't want to take the, the fourth grade girls and tell them that these are heroic things. They're not heroic things at all. And you go through some of these people and they're not necessarily heroic people. But what did they have in common? What they had in common is they believed that God would do what God said he was going to do. And so we pick up with this one here. Verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. I've been to Jericho. And after the army had descended around them for seven days. Verse 31. Here's who we're looking at today. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who did not believe. So we're going to talk about this lady, Rahab. And her story is 1,500 years B.C., 3,500 years ago. And she has faith, and she's commended for that faith. That's a long time before Jesus, right? So how does it work? Here's the, here's the account. Here's what was going on. In your Bible, if you start it out, there's a guy named Abraham, who was an idol worshiper, God calls him out and he begins a whole new life with him. And he tells him he's going to make him a great nation, tells him his name is going to be great, tells him his family is going to be this huge family. And his family grows to 70. God does a miracle and his wife ends up conceiving a child. Does a miracle. He didn't have to sleep with the housekeeper. God did a miracle and, and the child came through his wife. And so there's a lot of years before Jesus, but that guy... He believes God. God's going to give him a land. He's going to give him the promises. His family grows to about 70, and there's a famine in the land, and so they go down into Egypt. And they're down in Egypt, and their intention is to come back, but they don't come back. They stay there for 400 years. 400 years. And that family of 70 grows to millions of people. And in a day, that family will come out of Egypt, go into the promised land, They'll become a nation in a day. And so once they're freed from the slavery, they wander in the desert for 40 years. And God provides for them, provides for them supernaturally, gives them manna from heaven, water from rocks, uh, uh, gives them guidance, a pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day to lead them. And now he's promising them a land as an inheritance. They're going to the promised land. Where are we going? We're going to the promised land. How did they come out of Egypt. They came out of Egypt when an innocent lamb was slain. The blood of the lamb was slain. And because of the blood of that lamb, they were set free from their slavery. They were set free from their bondage. They were given a brand new life, a brand new beginning. They come out, they cross the Jordan, and they're heading to the promised land. Well, that's the same with us. John the Baptist, when he looked at Jesus, he said, you know, this is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The innocent lamb, Jesus, is going to die for the guilty. And because that lamb died for us, Jesus on the cross, then we're set free, we begin a new life, and where are we going? We're headed to the promised land. And on our way to the promised land, there's all kinds of difficulties, all kinds of trials, all kinds of roadblocks, all kinds of stumblings, all kinds of temptations, all kinds of seasons in life. But we're on the way to the promised land. And we're going there by faith, believing that God will do what God said he was going to do. So they're heading to the promised land. 
These people, this, this family that has now grown to a couple million people. And God had told them that he was going to give them the land, and the land that they were going into was a land that was going to be judged. Their, their sin, their iniquity, their violence had reached such heights that judgment is going to come. You never want to be living in a land where iniquity and wickedness and where violence grows to such a height because that nation will experience judgment. Read history books. Nations come, nations go. And so they're moving into a land where the nations are going. They're falling apart. Their sin, their iniquity, their violence. And so they're going in there, and when they're going in there, they send some spies into the land to look around and to see what it's like. And these spies go into the city of Jericho and they look around. And when they're there, they go into, they go into the home of, and they stay with this lady Rahab. She's a prostitute. And the king of Jericho hears that these guys have come, and he, and he hears that they may have been at Rahab's. And so he says, I want you to get me those guys. She ends up not telling the truth. She says, I don't know where they are. I don't know where they went. They were here, but they've come and they've gone. Well, presumably, the king of Jericho wanted to capture them to do what? To imprison them, to kill them, or get information. And the king of Jericho had heard of all of the wonderful things that God had done for this family. How he had taken them out of Egypt, how he had delivered them, how all of those miracle things happened to them, how many of them there were there, and that they were coming, and this nation is falling, and this nation is coming in. It's just the way it is. It's going to be that chapter in history. They're coming in. And this king is upset about it. And he talks to Rahab, where are they? And she hides them. You can read about this in Joshua 2. In fact, if you want to follow along, that's the story we're recounting right now, is Joshua chapter 2, where Rahab takes these guys in, these guys spy out the land, they see what's going on, the king of Jericho wants to know where they are, who are they, she hides them. And here's what they told her, they said, listen, you've been good to us, we're going to be good to you. So what you need to do is you need to take this scarlet cloth, this scarlet cord, and you need to hang it in your window. And here's what's going to happen, because we're coming. We're definitely coming. The king of Jericho thinks we're coming. We're coming. You guys are done. We're coming in. And they said, if you, ha if you hang that from your window, that cord, that scarlet cord, we will not harm you. Not only will we not harm you, but we will protect you. Not only will we, will we, we not harm and protect you, but we won't harm your family, and we will protect your family. So you and everybody in that house, we will take care of you. All you need to do is you need to hang that in your window so that when we come, we know that it's you. And nobody will bother you. Nobody will hurt you. That, that scarlet cord. And she had to hang it out there by faith, believing that those guys were going to do what they said they were going to do. And so by faith, she does it. She hangs it out there and sends those guys on their way. And so the scripture is so amazing and these accounts of scripture are so amazing. Jesus said, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be open to you. Um, Jesus is on every page of the scripture. He's on every single page. You just need to look for him to find him. And if you don't look for him in there, you won't find him. And so God is amazing in that the actual historical experiences of his people 
as he brings him into a land 3,500 years ago, is going to become a pattern and a metaphor that we can apply to our lives as we walk on our spiritual pilgrimage towards the promised land. Their experiences become our experiences. And so the experiences that we see here have exact, replica, exact application to the things that we experience on our spiritual journey through life. So our role is to get out of the boat, step, step on the water, and walk by faith. Peter did that, right? Jesus walked on water, and Peter was in the boat, and Peter said, Lord, tell me that I can come to you and walk on the water as well. And he said, do it. Go ahead and do it. And all the other guys are there as well, the other, the other apostles there. And Jesus said, do it, Peter, do it. And so, so Peter gets out and he starts to walk on the water. It says, when he saw the waves, he fell in. What did he do? He took his eyes off of Jesus and he fell in. And all kinds of people, they read that account and they go, yeah, you know, Peter you know, walked in the water and then he fell in. Hey, Peter walked on the water, okay? <laughs> Peter walked on the water. It may have been ever so brief, but he did it. And it's our job to get out of the boat and to walk on the water and do it by faith. And, and what we'll see it, with this account and what we'll see with our account is that it's a look at gaining victory one step at a time. One step at a time. Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies in peace. And so we look at her. Rahab is named 12 times in the scripture. That's pretty good, right? Get your name 12 times in the Bible? Two times in the New Testament. Five times her profession is attached to her name. Now, that's not the norm with people in the Bible where their profession is always attached to their name. It's not unusual either. Um, we know that Abraham was a herdsman. We know that David was a shepherd. We know that Esther was a queen. We know that Isaiah was a prophet. We know Joseph was a carpenter. Peter was a fisherman. Matthew was a tax collector. Paul was a tent maker. Rahab is a prostitute, a harlot. She's a prostitute. Which means what? Let's just say it. She traded sex for money. So are these the heroes of the Bible? You're going to call her like a hero? Um, she's certainly in the hall of faith. So if we had a hallway and we put all of the people that had faith, her, her picture would be up there. She's certainly in the hall of faith. Did she live her life heroically? Ah, sometimes, sometimes not. But what she did have was faith in God, that she believed that God would do what he said he was going to do. Are all of us heroic? Everybody here heroic? Sometimes we are, sometimes we're not. Some of us have yet to be a hero. <laughs> Maybe your time is coming, your heroic moment is coming. But it's not our heroic actions that save us, it's the blood of Jesus Christ that saves us, and our faith that he will do what he said he was going to do and our walk towards the promised land. She sold her body. And she's listed in the New Testament as one of those who are in the hall of faith. And she becomes an example, this prostitute becomes an example for people all throughout history. She becomes a picture of salvation through faith. Through faith, not, 
not because of what she did or who she was. And without going deep into the, the psychology of it all, I mean, think about this lady. You know, what we know from Scripture and what we know from life experiences is that sexual sin, and we could bring people up and they could all tell their stories, sexual sin has a way of leaving deep scars on our soul, deep scars on our being. And we do know that sexual sins bring with them a deep sense of shame and a deep sense of guilt, unless you harden your conscience. But you don't want to harden your conscience. You don't want to be around somebody who's hardened their conscience. So this lady, she's, uh, she's got a lot of baggage. She's got a lot of stuff. She's got a lot of internal stuff. She's got a lot of external stuff. And everybody in the community knows her. And so there are lots of faith people in the Bible. People we've read so far in chapter 11, Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. And now you know her name, Rahab, Rahab. There's a Jewish historian, his name is Josephus. He wrote a couple of big volumes called The War of the Jews. And he lived in the first century. He was Jewish, wrote about the War of the Jews. And, and he writes about the Jewish people's last sort of rebellion against Rome, which was really bloody and really brutal. Those people got brutalized. And so he writes about it. And he writes about other things as well that are going on at the time. And then he talks about other things that go on in Jewish history. And he, in his volumes, he tries to convince people that Rahab was an innkeeper. That she wasn't a prostitute, that she was an innkeeper. Well, the scripture says that she was a prostitute. And then I'm like, well, I'm willing to give Josephus that she was an innkeeper. And they just called it a brothel. You know, she's a prostitute. And so for, for some people, like Josephus, it's embarrassing to have her in the hall of faith. It's embarrassing. Why is this lady in there? Who is she? What's up with her? Not only was she a prostitute, but she was a woman. And in the day, not only in the day, throughout history, and a lot of women know this, that throughout history, women, and particularly in the time she lived in, women were devalued and mistreated on that basis alone. Why are you devalued and mistreated? Because you're a woman. And throughout history, that has happened to women over and over and over again. And so she's got all of this stuff going against her. She's a woman in that culture. She's a, she's a harlot. Everybody knows what she is. And she's got all of this internal stuff as well. And what happens in a moment, her life is going to change. In a moment, her life will change. And, and it reminds us of this too, that we like to say this around here, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Everybody's welcome at the foot of the cross. In fact, I often think that we name the church wrong. I thought, you know, Calvary, that word, Calvaria, it means skull, the place of the skull. That's where Jesus was crucified, at the place of the skull. And so it's not a pretty name at all, the place of the skull. But I, I've often thought, you know, 
should have just named it at the foot of the cross. So that when people say, where do you go? Where do you go to church? I go to the foot of the cross. <laughs> That's where I go. I go to the foot of the cross. Oh, I go to such and such, you know, community church, whatever. You know, I go to the foot of the cross. And it's there that the ground is level. We like to say from the guttermost to the uppermost, or from the guttermost to the uttermost, or from jail to Yale. It's for everybody. It's for everybody. And she's a harlot. And some of us don't like me saying over and over again that she's a harlot. Would he just like move right past that and stop saying she's a prostitute? Well, that's what she is. And it makes some people uncomfortable like Josephus. That God, God would actually honor the faith of somebody like her. Same thing happens in the New Testament where Jesus says to his own disciples and he says to the religious leaders, he said, hey, I, I just want you guys to know that like the sinners and the prostitutes are coming in before you guys. I just want you to know that. And one of the things that this does, this story of Rahab, is it magnifies the grace of God. Most of us read out of modern translations that are modern English English that we speak in the 21st century. But, so, but the King James Bible in the Psalms, it says, magnify the Lord with me. What does that mean? Magnify the Lord with me. Well, what happens when you use a magnifying glass? What happens? Things get bigger. Things get bigger. And so the psalmist is saying, magnify the Lord with me. Let's make the Lord bigger. Well, the Lord can't be any bigger than he already is. But he can be bigger in our eyes. He can be bigger in this gathering. He can be bigger in this setting. He can be bigger in my life. Let's magnify the Lord. And this lady's life magnifies the grace of God. Now, I want to tell you that the, that the greatest hindrance to the continuation of the gospel in people's lives and the greatest hindrance to the continuation of the gospel in Christian gatherings is we forget the grace of God. We forget that, that, that this lady here is a picture of God's grace and of God's goodness, of who he is, that she believes these guys. And we're going to see a little bit more about that in a moment. And so she becomes a beacon of hope for anyone who's broken, for anyone who's disenfranchised, for anyone who's hurting, for anyone who's bruised, for anyone who's fallen. And of Jesus, it says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. What does that mean? A bruised reed. My sunflowers got bruised in this last rain. Anybody have sunflowers that got bruised, just like, just completely came down and just cracked at the stem? But if it didn't crack at the stem and it was hanging on there, Jesus would be, there's still life there. There's still hope there. There's still opportunity there. We're not, we're not going to break a bruised reed. A smoldering wick, the thing is going out. Jesus isn't going to come over and just, ah, let's put that thing out. No, if your life is just smoldering, just trying to get a flame again, just trying to catch some energy again, Jesus isn't going to come and snuff you out. Rahab is an encouragement to anyone, and she's an encouragement to any sinner that the grace of God is way beyond our boundaries. She's an outsider. She's a Gentile. 
She has nothing going for her. She has nothing to commend her to the Lord. She's a Gentile. She's an idol worshiper. She's a harlot. She's a sinful woman. I don't have anything going for her. Except the grace of God and her name's in the Bible and mine's not. (laughs) Rahab. In that hall of faith. Go back to Joshua 2. What did she know? What did she know? She knew that God was with them. She knew God was with them. She had heard about it. And that's what it says. She had heard about these guys. She had heard about what God had done for them. She had heard that they were once in bondage and they were now free. And that God had taken care of them. That God had provided for them. That God had fed them. God had watched out for them. She heard about that. She heard about the fame of the Lord and what the Lord had done so far. But she hadn't experienced it. This is her first encounter with any of that. She's just heard about it. And everybody in town, everybody in Jericho has heard about this because they said, those guys are coming. Our days are numbered. And those guys are just beginning. She knew, and it says this. It says this of the king and it says it of her, that she knew that he was the Lord of heaven and earth. She knew that. And now these guys are here. And what she also knew, you read on in Joshua chapter 2, and she knew that she had experienced kindness simply by faith and by grace. How did she experience kindness? Total grace. Just faith. Just believing it. Just trusting. Nothing that she could do. What could she do? What did she have to offer anybody? What did she have to offer to God? And then she also knew this. She knew that this salvation was not just for her, but she knew that this salvation was for her family. That it was for her whole family. And some of us can, can come up here and tell the story of being the first one in our family to come to Christ. And how Jesus has been faithful to reach those people one by one by one. Sometimes ever slowly. I was the first one in my family to, uh, to come to Christ. We were sort of religious. We were religious until we weren't religious anymore. And then if you were ever pressed, you know, if you're somewhere, you know, at a party or, you know, visiting with people or whatever, and, you know, people ask you what you were, we would tell them, but we didn't really do any of that. But my whole family came to believe in Jesus, came to believe in who he was, uh, And so she knew that she and her family could be saved by Joshua. You see, Joshua is leading the troops. Joshua's name, Anthony, who was up here before, he just got his PhD. And what is it? Biblical Hebrew poetry. poetry. So the name, the name um, Joshua is Yeshua? How do you say it? Yahushua. Jesus. She knows. She knows that Joshua can save her. We know that Jesus can save us. And she knew that not only would it be good for her, but it would be good for her whole family. And it says the same thing in the book of Acts in the New Testament. It says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved in your whole household. Everyone with you. What she did, she believed in in her whole household was saved. But what did she do? She tied a scarlet thread to her window. That was it. What's the point of that? Well, it is a picture of faith that saves her. She had faith. She had confidence that what those guys said was true. 
And she had faith, and her faith saved her. Her faith saved her family when judgment was coming into the land. And Joshua, Yeshua, becomes your savior and your judge. You choose which one you want. You want him to be your savior, you want him to be your judge. She chose the scarlet thread, and it saved her and her family. And it's just like the account in the Passover when they shed the blood of the innocent lamb. He said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. I'll pass over you. Well, she had the same Passover experience. When we see the scarlet thread, we will pass over you. We will pass over you and your household. And so this thread of blood throughout the Bible is all through the pages. The Bible bleeds blood. Every page, wherever it is. And so this thread... Uh, some people have called this the scarlet thread of redemption. We'll get into that in a moment. But it begins with the innocent animals that were shed in, into the continuing through Rahab, including the sacrifice on the cross with Jesus, all the way into the book of Revelation where it says the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the earth. But we're going to come back to that in just a moment. And we'll close up with that. But this is important. This lady ends up in the genealogy of Jesus. She ends up being in the family tree of Jesus. Amazing. What happened? Her life is changed in a moment. She's preserved during Jericho's destruction, surely a blessing from God. And later, she marries a guy named Salmon. S-A-L-M-O-N. Um, like the fish, I guess. My granddaughter, who I see her laying over there on the ground, she tells me that it's not salmon, it's salmon, because that's the way you spell it. So maybe this guy's name is Salmon. Maybe it's Salmon, whoever he is. He's one of the chiefs of the tribe of Judah, and this lady ends up marrying him. She ends up marrying into the family of, of, of God. And she becomes one of the parents of godly Boaz, who's here today. And Rahab formed the link in the line of descent to King David of Israel, and Jesus comes through King David's line. And we won't mention that in that genealogy, there are some other women, and one of the other women is Bathsheba. She's the bath lady. In the adulterous relationship she had with King David, she's another picture of grace, ends up in the genealogy. So a few more things about this scarlet cord, this scarlet thread. History hinges on a pivotal event. And history hinges on the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Changes everything. Changes all of world history. Changes everything. Changes the history of the West. Changes the history of the East. Jesus is really East and West. He's coming from an Eastern culture. Christianity ends up affecting Western culture. The world changes because of Jesus. This pivotal event, all of history hinging on one event, the sacrificial death of Jesus. And all of the scripture leads up to the point of the sacrificial death of Jesus and the blood of the lamb and the, and the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the earth in the closing chapters of the book of Revelation. And so... There was a Bible scholar, his name is William Evans, 
We've used his book here before, The Doctrines of the Bible. And he says, cut the Bible anywhere and it bleeds. Cut it anywhere and it bleeds. Because he says, "The, the blood of Jesus stains every page, stains every book in both Testaments. And he said, the atonement is the scarlet cord that runs through every page of the entire Bible, that the entire Bible is read with redemption truth all through the scriptures. Uh, guy that I know, Mike McIntosh, who he's been here a couple of times at least, he, he used to, on Sunday night, he would have interns, people that wanted to go into ministry, and so they would, they would stick around the church and just learn how to do ministry, and he would let them speak. And on Sunday night, when the meetings were a little bit smaller, he used to bring some of those interns up and he would tell them, turn to any place in the Old Testament. Just open up some place in the Old Testament. And when they would open up some place in the Old Testament, he would say, start reading right where your eyes fall. And wherever the eyes would fall, they would read. And he would say, preach Jesus from there. Sometimes I wonder like how many chapters somebody needed to read before they'd see Jesus. There. But... but He's absolutely right that cut the Bible anywhere and it bleeds. That all through the scripture, it's the story of Jesus. All through the scripture, it's the story of faith. All through the scripture, it's the story of the blood, the blood of Jesus. Scarlet cords in the scripture, well, where do you find them? Right in the very beginning, the hides of the animals slaughtered in the Garden of Eden to provide garments for people who sinned. Death, innocent animals dying for guilty people. The ram provided at Mount Moriah, the very place that Jesus is crucified. The substitutionary lamb. The stains on the doorposts in Egypt when they were to take that blood and splatter it three times on their doorposts. The blood sacrifices of the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is just filled with blood sacrifices. Good thing those things are over. Well, how did they ever come to an end? Jesus was the final sacrifice. There never ever needs to be another sacrifice. Jesus was the final sacrifice for sin. And he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The garments of the high priest. They had red strands through his garments. The tabernacle in the Old Testament had scarlet threads through all of the material. The scarlet thread, the scarlet cord. The main theme of the Bible is Jesus. And the scarlet thread starts in the beginning, follows all the way through all of the Scripture until it gets to Jesus on the cross. In the book of Revelation, where it says, this is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of of the earth. And so God has a plan and he has a plan for you and he has a plan for me. And the choosing of Rahab to be an ancestor of Jesus proves that God extends his mercy to all of those who trust. God extends his mercy and, dem- and demonstrates that faith in him and what he has done is enough. Faith in Jesus. She heard the wonderful works of God in bringing the nation of Israel out of Egypt and supporting them in the wilderness. She had great faith, and her faith is a model for everyone today. So, um, 
We were supposed to baptize some people who I think are not here. Are there some people here that are coming up to be baptized? Yes? Come on up. Can we get somebody to help you come up? Come on up. So we need, uh, we have some guys that we're going to uh, help. Chris, Chris, come on up. Is that you? Can you guys get Chris up here? Anybody else? We had some other people that were going to get baptized as well. And if that's you, come on up and we will baptize you. Chris, we got some monsters here. We're going to try to lift you up and put you in here. Are we going to be able to do that or do we need to do it another way? These guys are monsters. They should be able to do it. It's up to you. We can throw water over you, whatever you want to do. Whatever you want to do, it's up to you, Chris. You want to be dunked? All right, man. Tell, tell, tell the monsters what to do. that last song? That's that song? Yeah. I think we'll sing it too. Gonna be cold too. We baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ. Are you coming to be baptized? Are there other people coming up? You are? Ha ha, you did it, man. Praise the Lord. <laughs> That's really cold, isn't it? So you want to come up here? You're going to be next? Yep. Are there other people as well? Do you have anyone with you? Oh, okay. All right. We'll wait. Her sister went to get her daughter. They're going to do it. Family together. Wow. <laughs> While we're waiting, maybe we can sing that song. Mm -hmm. 
God my Savior. How does it go? Megan. She got Let's stand up and we're all waiting for them. Trust in God, right? Yeah, go ahead. You can use this one. That one wasn't working before. Go to the chorus. My Savior, and coming into the new life you can keep going there we baptize you in the name of the Father the Son and of the Holy Spirit in Jesus name 
Because of your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, death to the old life, rising to the new life, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name.
Lord. And he heard, and he answered. I sought the Lord. And he heard, and he answered. That's why I trust him. That's why I trust him. I sought the Lord. And he heard, and he answered. I sought the Lord. And he heard, and he answered. I sought the Lord. And he heard, and he answered. That's why I trust him. That's why I trust my God, my Savior, the one who will never fail. He will never fail. I trust in God, my Savior, the one who will never There's still room if somebody wants to come up and get baptized spontaneously. Give your life to Jesus Christ. You are loved. You are loved. You are loved. There's plenty of food for everybody. Love one another. Peace.